pureness, if we're to take its name seriously, lay precisely in its projection as an antidote to the everyday politics of influence, patronage, brotherly, faction, rivalry, and deal-making that had, much to Jinnah's periodic dismay, previously characterized Muslim politics under the colonial regime. As Muhammad Iqbal put it, the political loyalties of patronage, kinship, and interests were, quote, earthbound. But Islamic history itself seemed to summon both individuals and the community itself to a higher plane of self-realization. Quote, forget brotheries, tribes, personal animosities, and rivalries, one appeal from Punjab's Muslim League leaders thus declared on the eve of the 1946 elections. Far more than a rescue from Hindu domination, though this too was necessary for the community's self-realization, it was the transcendence of everyday politics that gave the demand for Pakistan its most powerful sovereign moral resonances. Yet, critically, this rhetoric contrasted sharply with the reality of Muslim League politics in the last years of the Raj. Ironically, the triumph of the Muslim League in gaining popular support for Pakistan could not have occurred without the significant mobilization and manipulation of precisely the same earthbound political loyalties and identities that were projected as the Pakistan concept's fundamental antithesis. So what are we to make of this stunning contradiction that lay at the heart of the creation of Pakistan? The contradiction of a state whose moral claims to existence and to ultimate sovereign authority were significantly cast in moral opposition to the very structures of politics that were in actual fact central to creating it. One way to deal with this is by emphasizing the aspirational character of the new vision of political community that Pakistan represented, as Navida Khan has argued, a structure of aspiration linked to personal striving and struggle for fulfillment in the face of the institutional state's own and indeed society's own continuing and tenaciously entrenched worldly structures. But I would argue that the best way to get at the roots of this contradiction is by framing it in terms of ideas of sovereignty, a critical area for linking the intellectual history of ideas on the state with the history of changing ideas on the individual, divinity, and society itself. Writing on sovereignty as a general problem is quite extensive and conflicted, so I actually don't want to review that here. But in thinking about Pakistan, I'd like to hone in on one important strand in the literature that emphasizes what some have called sovereignty's inner conundrum. That is, its dependence on the intersection of two equally important but necessarily contradictory principles. As a concept, sovereignty is on one level deeply pragmatic, worldly, and particularizing. No state can effectively lay claim to sovereign authority unless it can mobilize the resources and the powers necessary to maintain order, structure, and livelihood in the society it rules. State sovereignty in this sense rests on deep political engagement. But on another level, sovereignty rests also on the claims of states to somehow rule from a position conceptually outside society's politics, a position necessary for it to embody the unity of the polity as a whole. Here, sovereignty depends fundamentally on the ruler's extra-political or even anti-political claims, usually cast in relationship to cosmic 
or universalizing principles of power. The conundrum of sovereignty thus lies in the degree to which both of these principles are central to sovereign claims, even as they are in critical ways antithetical. To begin to discuss the idea of Pakistan in these terms, we need to project it against the long-standing tensions in claims to sovereignty in Muslim South Asia and against the worldwide late colonial crisis of sovereignty that marked the 20th century era of Pakistan's creation. And to do this, I'd like to focus on the recent work of two authors, of Mitty Mukherjee, who has worked on the ideas of sovereignty projected by the British state, and of Asfar Muin, who has worked on the sovereign visions of the Mughal Empire. Um, and I'd like to carry this forward into the legacies of the Mughal Empire in India. So first, Mukherjee. Mukherjee's work is compelling precisely in providing for us an analysis of British sovereignty in South Asia that brings sovereignty's conundrums to the very center of the story. As she sees it, debates on sovereignty in late 18th century British India, particularly as manifested in the Warren Hastings trial, crystallized an emergent structure of sovereign thinking based on two juxtaposed yet also competing and even in some ways antithetical visions what she terms the, quote, colonial aspect of sovereignty and the imperial uh, aspect of sovereignty. So colonial sovereignty was cast in terms of state necessity, or to put it another way, in terms of the politics of everyday order. As a basically Hobbesian vision, colonial sovereignty enmeshed the state in the structures of power it encountered on the <coughs> ground in India and it justified political manipulation, coercion, and violence in the name of the pragmatic requirements of and the people's desire for order. This remained throughout a central justification for British rule. But contrasted with this was an equally important appeal to what she calls imperial sovereignty, a legitimizing claim to power based precisely on the ability to transcend these particularities and to position the state as standing altogether above and apart from society, an embodiment of idealized reason and progress defined for the British by commitment to what was called natural law. The clearest practical articulation of this framing of sovereignty came with Queen Victoria's proclamation marking the beginning of crown rule in 1858. Coming on the heels of the ferocious suppression of the 1857 revolt, the proclamation articulated a vision of state sovereignty that rhetorically transcended the violence that the events of 1857 and 58 had in practice shown to lie close to the heart of British rule. But it also crystallized the two sides of sovereignty into an emerging formulation which the British referred to as rule of law. However much the operation of colonial law depended in practice on an engagement with the hierarchical power structures of colonial society, the law as a sovereign principle was now also projected as standing above all the particularities and divisions of politics. All races and creed, creeds, as the proclamation put it, and all ancient rites, usages, and customs were to be fully respected 
by the state through a form of imperial self-binding, the rulers tying themselves to an emphasis on legal procedures as the embodiment of apolitical universal reason, capable of encompassing all of the varied particularities of local order. In its relationship to Indian society, law thus operated as a transcendent principle for the British, standing above the influence of politics, even as it was rhetorically grounded in the natural capacity for reason and conscience of the ruling class. This articulation of sovereignty provided a critical frame for a variety of Muslim responses. For Muslims, it was, of course, hardly irrelevant that even in the Queen's proclamation, the British also maintained their own distinctive Christian identity. But the specific truth of Christianity as a sovereign dispensation was universalized in Queen Victoria's proclamation through its almost complete conflation with reason and law. It is hardly surprising in this context that some Muslims, such as um, Sir Syed or Amir Ali, jumped on this by asserting a similar heritage for Islam, uh, allowing them to paint Islam, too, as a region, religion transcending its own particularity through its internal rationality, completeness, and universal truth. Responding to the distinctive construction of imperial sovereignty in India, they thus developed a claim to share as Muslims in India's new imperial sovereign dispensation, thereby trying to escape a position for Muslims as simply one of India's many particularized <laughs> creeds. Not all Muslims, of course, adopted this tack. Some overtly rejected British sovereign claims for rule, precisely because such claims directly challenge the, among other reasons, the absolute sovereign transcendence of God. This was a position dramatically taken, for example, by Shah Ismail Shahid. Um, but it is critical to note in practical terms that this challenge to British imperial sovereignty on religious grounds was linked equally to a challenge to the structure of British colonial sovereignty as well, that is, to the British mobilization of a structure of order defined by a hierarchy of intermediaries seen as operating in a realm quite distinct and even in considerable tension with the principles of overarching sovereignty that justified state authority. In fact, many of the most intense intellectual debates among Muslims under British rule focus precisely on the place and position of intermediaries in both social and divine order. Here it is critical to bring in the legacies of Mughal sovereignty as well. In discussing Mughal sovereignty, I want to talk about the work of Azfar Moin, who stresses what might be called an imminent sovereign vision, that is one defined by the ways that extraordinary individuals, that is intermediaries, gained and legitimized power through their abilities to tap into the imminent operation of cosmic and divine forces in the world. These forces, Moeen argues, shaped the structuring of power in India in myriad ways during the Mughal era, through the influence of planetary conjunctions on power in the world, through the shaping of millennial time, and through the positioning of key individuals as mediators with these hidden worlds, whether they were rulers, 
defined by the infusion of divine light into kingly genealogy, as with Akbar, or Sufi saints embedded in genealogies and landscapes of sanctity. As Alan Strathern has commented, Moeen presents us with a world in which the powerful Islamic legalist tradition was, quote, not so much abandoned as bypassed, or somehow encompassed within a larger frame with the body of the Mughal sovereign raised through ritual and visual imagery above the constraints of any one sacred tradition. These images of sovereignty, sovereign legitimacy drew strength, in other words, from the popular cultural orientations that suffused the Persianate world in this era, defining a culture in which Sufi saints were ubiquitous and where, quote, and this is from Moeen, where holy men and their miraculous bodies had become the principal interlocutors with the new holders of temporal power. Central for analysis, therefore, and in fact critical for framing such Muslim debate in the 19th and 20th centuries, is a consideration of the continuities and disjunctions between Mughal and British framings of sovereignty, and most particularly in their relationship to the powers of intermediaries. Mughal visions of human intermediaries, whether holy men or kings, who could by means of ritual and mystical genealogy tap into hidden currents of power, even as this power defined for them a place above the legal dispensation of particular religious traditions, had in fact significant parallels with the structuring of rule under the British. Some historians such as Rajiv Kinra have in fact begun to explore the intellectual links between some Mughal conflict concepts such as Sule Ko and later European visions of rule as well. There is no doubt that royal rituals were critical to the British too and that they made worldly hierarchies, as David Canadine puts it, quote, visible, imminent, and actual. Yet for the British, the sovereign appeal to reason and natural law was of a fundamentally different order. The 19th century British universe, too, was, after all, shaped by hidden worldly forces, that is, by the laws of science. But these were understandable and controllable not through ritual and genealogy, but through critical reason discourse. Indeed, British rule shared in a sovereign vision of reason as an almost <coughs> mystical property of human consciousness standing apart from the direct influence of the material socio-political world. Detached objectivity, in other words, which lies at the heart of Queen Victoria's proclamation, was in effect what the laws of science demanded from human consciousness. In this sense, reason is best seen not as an imminent, but as a transcendent sovereign principle. If the establishment of British control in India thus raised questions for Muslims about how to live under non-Muslim rule, it also precipitated, perhaps even more importantly, intense intra-Muslim debates on how mediation, including critically prophetic intercession, was to be understood in relation to the sovereign claims of the state. In fact, debates on the relationship between mediation and hierarchy between human intermediaries and sovereign authority, both human and divine, 
were among the most deeply contested issues shaping Muslim debate throughout the colonial period, on both an intellectual and on a popular level. Such debate at times took overtly religious form, as in the polemics of Deobandi's, Borelvi's, and Ethle Adith, on the interpretation and limits of intercession, both saintly and mm -hmm. prophetic. At times it took legal and political form, as in debates on customary law and its relationship to Sharia within the framing of a larger colonial rule of law. And at times it took overtly ideological form, as in debates on the meaning of justice within an agrarian world marked by deeply entrenched genealogically-based hierarchy, sharafat, caste, and baradri distinctions. As Sher Ali Tareen has recently argued, these debates are best read in terms of political theologies, a term drawn from the writings on sovereignty of Carl Schmitt, with questions of mediation between the divine and the world linked inescapably not only to theology, but to questions of political ordering. But they suggest also how such debates must be read in relation to the particular sovereign ideas also of the British and of the Mughals themselves. Such debates took on new meaning, however, as political reforms and a shifting worldwide context prompted a worldwide crisis of imperial sovereignty in the early decades of the 20th century. At the center of this lay the meanings to be attached to the long developing concept of the people's sovereignty, particularly as it gained new international purchase in the 20th century. The principle of popular sovereignty, of course, held a close but very conflicted relationship in Europe with the idea of the sovereignty of reason. While the people's sovereignty derived in part from objectifying reason and thus from the rule of law, it also increasingly lodged sovereignty in physical bodies. Tied to forces of identity, blood, desire, asceticism, violence, self-discipline, and a vision of individual autonomy that was imminent, embodied, and performed, multiple versions of the self generated new waves of intellectual questioning of sovereignty in the years both preceding and following the First World War. Such challenges also influenced a variety of Muslim movements in India, from the Khilafat movement to the Arar to the Khaksars that emphasized popular action and devotion and profoundly shaped the intellectual visions of men such as Muhammad Iqbal. But the key questions of political debate in the late colonial period continued to relate to the place of intermediaries in sovereign visions and how they stood in relationship to the conflicting principles of sovereign power. And here, the central institutional innovation of the late colonial era that gave new structure to these debates was the introduction of elections. In some ways, the very idea of elections was, of course, rooted in new sorts of popular sovereign claims. But in India, and particularly for Jinnah, as the Pakistan movement began to gain influence, the key to elections lay in their providing a new structural form for adapting a transcendent vision of sovereignty tied very closely to British imperial models and objectifying reason to the mobilization of intermediaries of all types. As a nation, Pakistan was an idea 
closely tied Virginia to the maintenance of old colonial sovereign models. But it was through the legal structure of elections that Jinnah was able to project this vision of sovereignty, even as he laid claim to popular support, self-consciously mobilized, particularly after the Muslim League's dismal showing in the 1937 elections, through appeals to structures of mediation that tapped into older and more imminent sovereign visions. Some even responded to League efforts to mobilize Sufis by projecting a vision of imminent Sufi leadership onto Jinnah himself. Think of Jinnah Saab whatever you like, said Pir Jamaat Ali Shah, but I say that Jinnah is Wali Allah. <laughs> but such appeals had little, if any, impact on the dominant sovereign vision that guided the Muslim League. Far different from Iqbal, Jinnah's vision was a deeply statist one, firmly fixed on defining the legitimacy of state authority. Like Mukherjee's colonial and imperial visions of sovereignty, Dunya and Deen were for Jinnah and the Muslim League leadership both necessary for sovereignty, but nevertheless remained resolutely separate and in some ways antithetical terms, realms. This did not mean, of course, that debates about the relationship between actual <coughs> social order and sovereign authority or about the relationship of media mediation and hierarchy disappeared after partition. Far from it. Critical debates on mediation and on the relationship between worldly power and transcendent sovereign authority have continued. But the model for the vision of a state defined by a claim to sovereignty detached from any significant grounding in the society it ruled or in the culturally embedded practice of Islam was one of the greatest legacies of the shape that the movement for Pakistan ultimately took. Thank you. Thank you.